Hey, everybody. Okay. Welcome to today's episode. We have a special guest joining us. Um, he is a great botanist, and he's also in the same graduate program that Turtle and I are in, and that is Kaya Deerinwater. Welcome, Kaya. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. So, um, are we just jumping right into the DigiPact? We can. Okay. Yeah, totally. Okay. So, when I was back home, something interesting happened to me that I didn't necessarily think about and it was the fact that bob marshall actually went to the same school that we go to yeah i know i I had no idea have you heard about the bob marshall wilderness or have you been up there kaya no i haven't um i've only spent very little time in montana oh okay and so yeah this bob marshall guy is very well known around here Mm-hmm. There's Very even well a known. building named after him, <laughs> and he, I, I, I had no idea that he was so old. <laughs> he I thought was it was old. Yeah, yeah. Like he was. Oh my gosh! When was he born? Like eighteen. Yeah, the dude was born at the end of the Victorian era. <laughs> That's old school, man. <laughs> yeah, he was. He went to our school when it was just called the College of. Uh, forestry yeah before it even became the college of environmental science and forestry (laughs) so that gets me curious when environmental science got established as a field Ooh, yeah Hmm. we should have looked into that i think the name changed only like 30 or 40 years ago yeah yeah that kind of makes sense it's kind of the liberal arts of science natural sciences (laughs) so this bob marshall guy was really important, and they ended up naming the wilderness area in Montana after him. And it's really fascinating because it started in 1980 or 1897 with President Grove Cleveland. And I've never even heard of this guy. There are so many presidents that I don't know about. Yeah. I feel bad. Yeah, he's definitely... Was he one of those one-termers? I, I'm not sure. I, I'm assuming he was. But this is one thing he did is he started the... so. He what one of the things he did with his presidency was he took the Lewis and Clark Forest Reserve and turned it and created the Forest Reserve Act, and that was through the Department of the Interior, which is also where BIA is at, interestingly enough. And then in 1905, that turned into the Forest Service, and they developed the Department of Agriculture. And then in 1907, the Forest Reserves got turned into national parks, and that was where the, it started the process of all these different places turning into national parks. And then in 1940, the Secretary of Agriculture, his name was Henry Wallace, designated almost a million acres. It's 950,000 acres as the Bob Marshall Wilderness by combining three of these national forest primitive areas. It was the South Fork, the Sun River, and Pentagon. And I don't even know where the Pentagon one is, so... But I've spent lots of time in the South Fork in the Sun River. Mm-hmm. Have you been up in there in the South Fork maybe? I've been in the South Fork. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, hold on. I got an interesting fact about Grover Cleveland before before we get too off track. Cool. Because it's actually interesting. Cause, so he was the only president in American history to serve two non-consecutive terms. Huh. So he was the 22nd president and then he was the 24th president. What? Wow. That's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know any presidents did that. <laughs> I didn't either. So fun fact about him. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, no, I was so he kind of was a one-termer. Yeah, yeah, he was a one-termer <laughs> twice. twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been to the South Fork. Um, I had a cousin that actually spent a week this summer backpacking through the Bob Marshall, mm. and I wanted to join him. Maybe next year. It's a tough we'll country. See. It's very tough country. Yeah, there's. You ever seen pictures of the Chinese Wall? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that place is epic. It's one of the most epic place. Oh man. We'll probably post a picture on our social media. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. And so I think what I really liked about a little bit about Bob Marshall, this guy is he was well known for his sense of humor. And he was the third oldest of four kids and lived in New York City, but spent a lot of time at their family cabin at this or their family cabin at this place called Saranac Lake Village. I think it's an known now as Knollwood. So anybody listening that loves Knollwood, just know mm-hmm. that Bob Marshall was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people love Bob Marshall. I 
I guess I didn't really put two and two together. I've always known about the Bob Marshall Wilderness, but mm-hmm. not necessarily about the person behind it. Yeah, I kind of sort of did. Mm-hmm. Just learning about Gifford Pinchot and Muir and all those like, those dudes, you know, Forest Service guys. But, okay, Indigifact, done. done. Chick. So, so, Kaya. Yeah, Kaya. I'm, I'm really glad that we finally get to interview you. We, I know Annie and I have been talking about interviewing you for... Almost a year solid, I think. Pretty much since the very beginning. Since the beginning, yeah. yeah. You've been yeah. the top choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, definitely I hope one. it was me and the other cohort members. Yeah, oh, yeah. You, you were. Definitely you and so Cynthia. Yeah. We wanted to have like a group one when we were all here last semester for spring of last year. Mm-hmm. But it didn't play out like no, that. No, <laughs> it didn't happen. I'm glad it's happening now, though. So before we get into any kind of really specific questions... I know I'd like to start off with just where you're coming from. So would you like to share a little bit about where you're from and where you're raised and kind of what your childhood was like? Yeah. um, So I was raised in Santa Cruz, California um, in the 90s, of course. And um, I was raised by my mom, who was a single parent, and... She was a hippie and she really liked traveling. So we spent a lot of our time camping outdoors, um, going to visit friends and family all over the Western U.S. And um, so I think that's where I got my love of plants from. Hmm. Um. But also, that love of plants, I think, is more deeply rooted in, because as I look into my past, into my uh, ancestors, both indigenous and non-indigenous, there's a trend of environmentalism and botany and conservation in all parts of my family. Cool. So in what ways? Is it like a scientist or is it activism? Kind of both. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this woman, she would be my great, great aunt, Catherine Martindale, who was a kind of a activist, conservationist, uh, botanist person in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And she fought for the preservation of the prairies in Wisconsin. And then in the 40s, I believe, when the uh, interstates were going in she went ahead of the road crews and took all of the rare endemic plants and put them in other places so oh. she like dug up plants that were going to be bulldozed wow so oh, wow. like assisted migration before yeah. that was even a thing <laughs> right huh that's cool um but yeah so that's uh and i um didn't really connect with anything with my tribe, um, I'm citizen Potawatomi from Oklahoma, and I didn't really connect with that until I was probably 18 or 19 mm-hmm. when I went off to live on my own and uh, I was in community college. So I, yeah, that's when I started finding stuff out on my own. My My family didn't really... It's kind of a trend in within lots of folks from Citizen Potawatomi that their family didn't really tell them much about their mm-hmm. heritage or anything, especially if you weren't from Oklahoma or like around, didn't grow up around Oklahoma. So I think I'm kind of similar to a lot of other folks in that it took my own curiosity and my own um, desire and motivation to kind of seek that stuff out. Hmm. Yeah. I know when it's a choice, it really makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's more like a, a lasting impression when you, you kind of make it your own choice mm-hmm. other than like a kind of a forceful, but I guess if you're raised with it, it's kind of unique in its own self. So what did you study in community college then, Bonnie? Um, no, I studied, well, I didn't have a botany program, so I studied the closest thing 
which is environmental studies. Oh, yeah. Haskell didn't have anything. It was just environmental right. science. Right. Yeah. But I I had an internship that was um, based in botany, basically, and ecology. So I got exposed, like, through the internship, and mm-hmm. then my professors and stuff worked with me outside of class. And so I kind of got more and more into it during that time. So was it at this time where you kind of started focusing on like traditional CPN plants or kind of that understanding or when did that kind of happen? Oh, that didn't happen until hmm, maybe five years ago. Uh, because wow, I, you got a lot of knowledge in five years. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so I've always felt like a deep connection and need for connection to place. Mm-hmm. So being in California and raised in the Bay area, um, and never have, um, I never had the opportunity to go to Michigan or the great lakes. So my exposure and experience was based in where I was familiar with. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned the plants from, my home where Mm. I grew up because it wouldn't have been, I would have had no connection to those plants. Mm. Never have like, I never had been there, you know? Right. Um, so I think that, but then moving to Colorado, to New York, back to Oklahoma, kind of that journey exposed me to, um, cultural plants and Potawatomi plants and reading Robin's book, of course. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Robin is the common denominator for all of us. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. I know that when I read gathering moss, I fell in love with her almost immediately. I, I would say within the first few pages, even she has a really unique capability of translating some of these ideas into writing. Yeah, well, now that I'm learning about interpretive writing, thanks to my class, it's really hard to have like a thematic kind of thought process in writing without sounding like super cliche, mm, come yeah. to realize. And she is a great writer. Yeah, she she doesn't use cliches very mm-hmm. often. And when she does, I think she does does it very thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's super interesting when you talk about connecting to place, because as um, Potawatomi, you guys are extremely displaced people and kind of looking into our program about biocultural restoration, is that kind of what pushed you to do this program or kind of that need for connecting to place and connecting to certain plants or kind of what made you decide to apply for this program? Mm, That's actually pretty pretty serendipitous uh, uh, kind of pathway. And um, it all started one afternoon in the summer of 2015. And uh, my wife, Kathy, was like, hey, there's this, there's the gathering of the Potawatomi Nation is in Wisconsin this year. And I happen to have a week off we should go. And it was like a Thursday and Mm -hmm. we had to leave on a Friday. Mm. And so we're like, okay, let's do it. (laughs) And we just kind of packed up and made the, you know, I think it was 14 or 1800 mile journey from Colorado to Wisconsin. And when we were there, we were welcomed there and we met Robin's cousin and some of her friends and, I, at this point, I didn't even know about Robin and I was just talking with them and they're, you know, getting to know them. They said, Oh, what do you do? What, what are your interests? Mm-hmm. You know, and I told them I was a botanist and they're like, Oh my God, you have to meet Robin our cousin, Robin. <laughs> you have to know, you should meet her. She's a great person. You'll love, love her. And mm-hmm. so I, after that trip, I looked up her book and I started reading it and I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. Like I've had these exact thoughts but 
been unable to express them in such a clear, concise way. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got in touch. I can't remember if I got in touch or they got in touch with me. But anyways, I got connected to Robin. And then I met her at the ACES National Conference. She was there. And we got to talking. And she was like, well, what are your interests and your goals? And I was like, well, you know, I've always wanted to go to grad school, but I've never really found the right program. Mm -hmm. And she's like, whoa, this is great because I have a program starting in 2017. (laughs) And so it's all it's all history from there. Wow. Yeah, I would definitely say that's serendipity. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Even the technical way we use it in science, the whole. What is that? What, there's a term. I, I already forgot the second part of it. Like serendipitous something. Oh, I learned it in, yeah. uh, in methods, in this oh. methods class mm. I was taking. Where it's basically, oh, yeah, yeah. that's how a lot of discoveries are made. Yeah. Is you're just kind of just mm-hmm. trudging through the process of research, trying to figure out your question and trying to understand all these theories and all these different frameworks of thinking. And then one night you just wake up. And it comes to you and yeah. you, and all of a sudden you have this huge revelation about your science or whatever you're doing. Yeah. It also uh, one little bit I forgot to mention is like my bachelor's is in ecological restoration and, oh. and I feel extremely lucky to have gone to a school where your bachelor's allows you the detail of one specific field like ecological restoration. And I had a whole bunch of great classes available but those classes still left out community and the indigenous perspective in science so i always was the you know pin in people's side when we had discussions saying like hey look this is this is great but you know this can't be accomplished without taking into consideration community and culture and people you know it's the people that are driving for the most part the people that are driving the degradation that restorationists then go and do their work with so i always saw it as like a clear connection Mm. Um, and then so that was also another driving force behind applying to Mm -hmm. this program uh, because it was it was biocultural restoration yeah and when i applied i didn't even know what that meant but i <laughs> yeah, was me like either. it sounds kind of exactly like i mean it sounds i didn't know what it meant but i thought i know what it, knew what it meant hmm. so in your experience and in your undergraduate studies for is ecological restoration yeah did did you work with any restorationists that alluded to this need for biocultural restoration No, I don't think I did, but most of the restoration projects that I was part of were community-based restoration. Mm-hmm. So the volunteer base of the restoration project for the implementation side were all community members. And so that was already kind of inherent in the process but coming here i don't know how coming here and learning what we've learned i don't know how much those community members were actually consulted in the beginning of the process um also being at a large university college like or a large university town like that the general awareness of like ecological need is probably higher than a lot of other places so community members aren't so opposed to working on stuff like that as you know maybe somewhere in the middle of the corn belt or something like that Mm. or yeah or like in the inner city or in the inner city or yeah that yeah that makes a lot of sense and hmm, so as far as your studies go and how that ended up coming into your relationship with the citizen Potawatomi nation. Where do you feel like your specific knowledge and your specific perspective on ecological restoration, where do you think that's going to contribute to the overall well-being and the 
incre- I guess maybe increasing the well-being and sovereignty of the nation? Or do you think that you can? I hope I can. Yeah, me too. I hope, <laughs> uh, I think it's going to take, uh, to paraphrase a coworker, it's going to take a lot of persistence and a gentle pressure hmm. to yeah. shift the overall feeling about uh, reconnection to place and Potawatomi culture and life ways. Yeah. Connecting to place. That's such a huge... Interestingly enough, when I was when we were doing research for the Bob Marshall Indigifact, I, I came across the Bob Marshall Wilderness Foundation, and their motto is connecting people with wild places. Hmm. I don't like that word hmm. wild. If they were to take that out, that I think is going to be a huge philosophical shift from a non-indigenous perspective to understand an indigenous perspective, because we don't separate wild and mm-hmm. non-wild. Mm-hmm. It's all the same world yeah because i think like wild is kind of like that idea of like recreational wilderness mm-hmm. like kind of like going to somewhere that's like out of like a suburban area like an urban area and like going to like these really wild places that have like yeah untrammeled yeah is that very specific word right. it's still in the language of yeah. the forest service and these other places yeah I, I have a problem with the word wild and the usage of it yeah i like other <laughs> definitions of wild and i consider myself wild in certain ways mm-hmm. but the idea of wild versus non-wild places i think is a fallacy of thinking of it's a modern and it also gets back to the whole doctrine of discovery mm-hmm. manifest destiny oh, i There's recently heard that the the or that some people are challenging that exact thing the doctrine of discovery and trying to see if it can't be repealed mm-hmm. to, to have the actual roman catholic church co- repeal that i think that would make that would be big mm-hmm. and it makes me wonder like that because that's the foundation of the marshall trilogy right and a lot of federal indian policy right. is the doctrine mm-hmm. of discovery so that would change a lot of things yeah they're all rooted in the, the fabled papal bulls mm-hmm. yeah so with your research that you're currently doing, how do you feel like how do you feel like the major challenges have affected your personal life? Ooh. Good question. Let me <laughs> think. Because like I think in my research, I'll give you an example, is I acknowledge smells a lot more than I did before my research. Hmm acutely aware very very much aware Mm -hmm. well i'd say that i because of my research i look at the landscape differently and i would say around oklahoma i'm more aware of plants that have like an immediate use for Mm. people that is tangible and um, applicable, like sumac or dandelion or, and Mm. and less concerned with like, Oh, what is traditional plants or what are not Mm. traditional plants? Mm -hmm. It's more like, what do we have available Mm. to us? Um, And, you know, their plants are always there for us. Uh, we just need to reach out to them. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way you put that. We need, we just need to reach out to them. (laughs) And I know a lot of people I have a lot of respect for say that exact thing in different words. They say that none of this knowledge was really ours to begin with. And all we have to do is go out to these places, spend time there and start listening again. And I think that sounds like what you've been doing. And so, so let me get a little more specific on that question. What have been some of the challenges in your research? Mm, I mean, being a tribal member that did not grow up in Oklahoma, 
there is um there's a certain amount of distance created between people who grew up and people who didn't grow up there and not that people are unwelcoming just that like i don't know everybody mm-hmm. like it's a small place and you know if i need to go get something from you know some department i'm not i've have never met those folks that run that department whereas people who grew up in Shawnee area they are all familiar with each other and they know they know how to navigate both like the social aspects of CPN and the more governmental or like bureaucratic aspects of CPN and i i'm so new i don't know that hmm. don't know that landscape um and also not being from there i think there is a certain amount of like outsiderness yeah mm-hmm. definitely i know that i get that same that feeling of being an outsider just on my own res mm-hmm. when i go to certain communities i just haven't spent that much time with or right. a family that i don't really know so that that's really important to acknowledge that you are an outsider yeah but that doesn't mean you can't do good work for the community no, right no I, I mean and let me be clear and say that everybody that i have talked with and everybody that i've met and worked with has been extremely inviting and has been more than happy to help me so it's more like my own learning process mm-hmm. um got to get over your own insecurities and your own lack of knowledge right yeah yeah that's i would say that's a major challenge for any restorationist and a a challenge that more restorationists should put more effort into and more time into actually developing that kind of knowledge and that's probably one of the main steps that's missing from restoration projects in my opinion is the lack of time availability to just spend with the people to yeah. learn all those nuances that each community kind of has of its own. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, because I haven't spent any time in Oklahoma, another challenge is um, learning a whole new flora. You know, mm-hmm. like there are similarities. I'm The more I travel the more across Turtle Island, the more I realize that there are some common plants that everybody has and there are more specialized plants that only certain regions have. Um but that was that's definitely a challenge in my um, a portion of my uh, research, which requires me to identify all the plants. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm a botanist, so I know the general plant, the families, and how they all fit together and the systematics. But when it comes down to keying things out, there are whole genera that aren't I've never even seen before. Right. Mm, that's a learning process all by itself. Mm-hmm. You're yep. learning how to key stuff out where in a place you've never been or spent that much time in yeah Yeah, i know that i've learned a lot by just by picking up a key and keying out a few species it's a lot of fun though oh yeah especially for a botany geek (laughs) yeah i really enjoyed uh just getting to be out on the lands this summer and see everything and being surprised by that wasn't that was something that was really cool was there's a lot of i don't really like this word discovery but there was a lot of discovery personal discovery you know in in what was out there and and how it all fit together because you can read a book that'll tell you the ecology of oklahoma or the botany of oklahoma but then it's really different to actually be on the land Mm -hmm. and see everything yeah, that's that's something that I was thinking about was, would you have the same kind of connection to plants um, just by reading it? Or is it kind of really that, that both of reading about it, learning about it, but then being in there, touching the leaves and kind of seeing it grow, seeing everything, seeing how yeah. it's harvest? Like, is that... 
like what role then does that play with with people who are um, displaced people Hmm. you know yeah you can you can only get so far with a book Mm -hmm. before you actually have to go and meet those relatives Mm. Um, and like you said watching it grow learning the different different growth patterns and different times a year and different I mean, you need to spend time with intimate time with plants to really understand them. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can get a book, but it's it's only going to get you so far. Yeah. And then also mm-hmm. a book without a teacher. Is oh, also, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, that's another thing that I kind of struggle with being in Oklahoma and not having access to any of our mentors like personal, like physical access is that, you know, when you have a question, you got to send an email or something. Right. So. Oh, that technology. Yeah. (laughs) That gives a whole new meaning to that phrase. Stop and smell the roses. Mm -hmm. Because that, that I think what the intent there is you need to take time sometimes to really actually know anything and not time with a book, but time with that thing, with that place, with those people. That's, that's really important. Um, so one thing that my research tends to be very like cultural specific towards my people. Um, and one thing that I kind of fascinate about your two research projects is that they're kind of have this idea of maybe being presentable in a way that can, be useful for many indigenous groups. And I'm kind of wondering, Kaya, what, what is the main thing that you're hoping that other indigenous communities can get from your research? Mm. The main thing that I hope people get from research mine or otherwise is I don't know, actually. Hmm. Well, I mean, obviously there's this theme between all of our researches. Mm-hmm. And it's I, I, I see it as connection to place. Yeah, I think, I hope that other people can take away. There are, are ways to reconnect to place that even if you, you're a removed people, uh, like many of the Oklahoma tribes, um, there are are other there are different ways besides um, you know just sticking with quote unquote traditional plants. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know I don't see any of the Oklahoma tribes mm-hmm. up and leaving, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if that's an understanding, then as indigenous people, we have to adapt. So, um, getting help from the people whose original lands those are helping each other, like the neighboring tribes. Um, I think those are two things that cooperation sharing, Mm -hmm. I think that's important and putting down, Realizing that we're all, we all have certain hangups and, um, but in the end of the day, we need to, we need to work together because we're all indigenous. Hmm. Dang. Can I quote you on that? (laughs) (laughs) I like, I'm going to put that in my quote book. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Well, I think that's very true because one thing that I think kind of surprises me about our our reservation or flathead um flathead nation is the fact that living on the same reservation these two two of the main tribes have a hard time getting along together mm-hmm. and it's been 100 and 100 plus years now and and so i don't know i think that's really important it's just remembering to work together even mm. if you're even if you're not similar dialects so salish people have a Salish conference that they go to where a lot of the interior Salish will get together and have a conference of their Mm -hmm. own. But I also think it's important as indigenous people that we do 
interact and we learn from other groups, mm-hmm. not just kind of our similar dialects. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I think a lot of, a lot of folks get, get their blinders stuck on mm-hmm. and get stuck in the silo of this is, this is mine or this is traditional or this is, you know, how we do things or whatever. And, uh, it's been really great experience going to, these intertribal food summits that I go to because it's regional. And so there is a lot of different people sharing a lot of different traditions and it's all met with an open mind. Mm. Whereas I feel like a lot of other places and things that I go to, it's, it's all kind of like very closed off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very exclusive. Yeah. Exclusive. I know. And there's a need for that, that you know, there's a need for that, but yeah, it's kind of a protective way to protect your knowledge and your people. So I, I totally understand. And I, I mean, humans we're inherently competitive. That's a part of why we've been so successful as groups, but we're also inherently cooperative and and that's another reason why we've been so successful as a species is we cooperate together when we need to. Yet now there are so many people on the planet. There's just too many people to be so damn competitive about everything. Mm-hmm. So I think there needs to be a renewed sense of balance around mm-hmm. those things. And I know that these conferences and symposiums and different places where people come together with that foreknowledge that we're coming here to share. We're coming here to exchange and trying to build that more into our daily lives, I think is going to go a long way. Yep. So, and it's also, sorry, no, no, I was just, (laughs) I was just going to keep rambling. And it also gets back to a lot of what we've learned in this program about, Oh, we need to change our foundation and our foundation is our worldview. Mm -hmm. We all as humans need to understand that mother earth has enough to provide for all of us. If we look at it that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one thing I'm grateful for. That's kind of one of my big, great, grateful things is I realize that I don't need anything. I don't, I don't deserve anything either because I've been already been given everything. I'm alive. Mm-hmm. I'm breathing. I get to walk down the street. There's so many things that I think I used to take for granted really, really bad. And now I realize that a lot of my thinking when I was younger was, com- it was completely backwards. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that I was able to make that shift in my own life. And it really was founded in that sense of gratitude and that sense of responsibility for what I'm doing in the world. So with that being said, did you have something? Well, I think it just like kind of proves that it doesn't matter when you started or what age you started, mm-hmm. but as yeah, long as you too late. do it. Yeah. yeah. Cause I was like, Kaya, I really didn't start to get too into my own kind of cultural ways and kind of cultural knowing until I was out of high school and, Probably even after high school, maybe mm-hmm. kind of like, yeah, I know you yeah. shared that story of that walk yeah. that you went on, right? Yeah. So mine was like 2015 when I like really kind of got my own motivation and my own need to kind of fulfill my cultural worldview of myself. And so it's important. Mm-hmm. I would say none of us are really a complete version of ourselves until we connect with some culture somewhere mm-hmm. and and actually do it and integrate it into our lives and it's amazing how fast the benefits come right you get more clarity about your purpose you get more clarity about what your responsibilities are in that place and for yourself and your family so it's it's i would say it's one of the most important things a human can do is get clear about what culture you want to be a part of and sometimes it's not a, we don't really have a choice, right? We're born into it. But at, once you're an adult, you totally do have a choice. Mm-hmm. And I know when I was a teenager, I walked away from my culture where I, I kind of have this opposite story in, in a lot of ways where I was raised going to sweat. I was raised going to all these different ceremonies like jump dance or Ocon. Mm-hmm. And what I realized after a while was 
those were preparing me to understand certain aspects of knowledge and of experience that you simply cannot understand through the lens of mm-hmm. reductive science. Mm. So, but at that point in my life, right around 14 or 15, I walked away completely yeah. and totally rejected it. And I thought, oh, that's just bullshit. It's all just superstitions and metaphors until I experienced some really crazy stuff that I couldn't explain except by remembering what I had learned in mm. those ceremonies. So, yeah, I... I really think it's very important for people to engage with their culture. Mm-hmm. Really important. And with that in mind, I, I'd, I'd like to ask you about your legacy. What kind of legacy do you want to leave for your children? Well, I think both Kathy and I um, would like our kids to know more like you said more about your culture and have Mm -hmm. those experiences from a young age um so that it really becomes part of them and they already are to a certain extent i mean i use as much of my language at home as i know um so for example water isn't water water is ama they say it at daycare, mm. they say it at home, they say it anywhere, at grandparents' house. And so everybody around us now knows that water is uh, mama. Wow, that's so cool. Um, or we use their their the names for themselves, like Nikon or Nseza, which is like little brother or older brother, mm-hmm. instead of brother. You know, mm-hmm. go get your brother, go get Nikon kind of. So they, they have, even if they think back to those times as a kid and maybe say, oh, like I wasn't provided culture or whatever. If they really think about it, I'm sure like you can, you could see. <laughs> and in my interviews with other people, they say things like that mm-hmm. with elders. Yeah. They say like, oh, well, we weren't taught the language, but. I always said this or my mom always did this or, and so there are those little threads of, of culture that make it through assimilation, regardless of how much or little you have been assimilated. That reminds me of my little niece. Um, so she is four. And, um, one of the things that we say is little manage. (laughs) So it means little shit. (laughs) (laughs) and so she told her um head start teacher she was like millie i want to tell you a secret she's four keep this in mind so so she went to her her head start teacher and she was like whispered in her ear all serious (laughs) you're a little manage and i was like oh my gosh (laughs) so she's always gonna remember manage and i think there's always like little words Mm -hmm. that i think always will make it kind of past that assimilation no matter how hard you kind of try to push that away hmm And I think what's I've come to find out is when they're younger, it's super easy to try to like switch the, their dynamics on how they feel about language. Mm -hmm. And cause my other two, my, my niece and my nephew, um, their dad is Mexican. So whenever they go to Washington, they speak only Spanish or Mexican. Mm -hmm. I'm very improper. And I don't know which one it is. I would say I've met a lot of people from Mexico and they, they say, yeah, we speak Mexican, not Spanish. Mexican. Cause his, or they, uh, different dialect. Cause his family is from Mexico. Um, but then when I, when they're back home and I'm back home, I make sure that I teach them, one through 10 in Salish, or I make sure that if they want to call me, cause they have Tia and Tio. And I'm like, well, you could call me Kahe, which is aunt in Salish. Mm, would the, so that'd be on the father's side? Mother's side. Mother. Oh, oh, yeah. I, thought that guys... was, I thought that was Titi. Oh no. So father's side of span of Victor's. So Victor is the Tia and Tio. Oh, okay. But Kahe is maternal is the, woman's side for salish interesting so we must we might have that backwards in our family because because uh and that's a different story i'm gonna have to figure that out because yeah. i've been saying the opposite of that so they call me nunu and yeah because titi oh 
Hmm. We should talk after the show and figure that out. Yeah, we should talk. Do you guys have that where it's maternal and paternal, where the yeah. words are different? Yep. And Ugh. older and younger and... Yeah. Older and younger, maternal, paternal, and... Jeez. Hmm. So it's, it's very okay. specific. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing it. about Potawatomi is, like, hmm. it's extremely specific. Uh, there is... And there's a role that goes with that name. It's not just the name itself, you know? Yeah. There are important things that those people in your life have responsibilities to, at least historically and traditionally. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is has not been implemented in today's uh for to the to the vast extent in today's society with Potawatomi people um i'm sure there are lots of people who do um but uh yeah hmm so kind of understanding the language then are you have you did you take them out when you did kind of like your field work where you kind mm. of or your garden like oh yeah you, they love to the garden they love the garden they love the garden there was a one period in the summer that uh, there was a caterpillar had landed, had made a home on, I think it was celery. And <laughs> now Ajewa, whenever he, whenever we turn on the driveway up to the garden, he says, go see caterpillar. <laughs> he like has that. They have amazingly strong memories like that. Right. He associates driving up there to the garden and then that time that he saw the caterpillar and he's only two yeah 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 wow that's crazy that might seem kind of simple on the surface but the the nested systems that surround all that really make that a it's very complex thinking to associate all those different places and all these different (laughs) things and it all boils down to that caterpillar yep (laughs) that's yeah Hmm. and then we had to tell him that the, the caterpillar left because the chrysalis had Hatched and moved on. Yeah. And now he says, caterpillar all gone. (laughs) That's cute. It's amazing how fast children learn at that young age and how like just in almost instant sometimes they'll pick up really complex things without the normal, like what we consider a normal learning process. Mm -hmm. And I know that everyone learns differently, but I've, seen a lot of kids over the years learn that way just by going somewhere and experiencing something once and then they got it they got it down yeah and and shonya likewise says you know go play with dirt pile because like (laughs) that's what he likes to do is go Mm -hmm. play in dirt i want to go play in some dirt (laughs) i haven't played in dirt for a little while and um so with shonya's you guys are doing something where you're trying to do all 50 states in <laughs> 50 by five yeah and we're like 42 of 50 it's gonna be tough i don't know if we're gonna actually make it huh is, is the hawaii wow that's a big hawaii like, was already hawaii's already oh. it's it's more like alaska sadly montana oh you come to montana this summer <laughs> yeah kids. yeah alaska montana and then those gulf states wow mm. that's sweet southeast I know yeah. that traveling when I was a kid, even before I was super conscious that we were traveling around the nation, that had a big effect on me, just mm-hmm. going and seeing different places. So did your, so your experience being raised by your mother who was a traveling, is that kind of, was that kind of your idea behind it or was it more or less? Uh, it was kind of a accident actually, cause you know. Kathy travels a lot for her job. And so in the first, first couple years, um, I was a stay at home dad and she was nursing. So we all, we went everywhere together. And, uh, I think a majority of those states were actually before Shonius was two. Oh, wow. Whoa. <laughs> Man, that's, <clears throat> I'm a little jealous. I think that's a really going to really benefit your kids a lot that you were able to stay home with them and bond with them as a father mm-hmm. in such a deep way. A lot of fathers don't get that opportunity and some fathers just kind of suck at it. They're, they're so used to like a certain mentality of going out, providing, mm-hmm. working hard and all this stuff. And, and I know it, that it's different for mothers and fathers connecting with children. There's a lot of research around this, but it is undisputable that it is super important for us to connect both parents mm-hmm. to connect with the children. But mm-hmm. uh, so I'm I'm glad to hear that you're able to do that for them. 
Yeah. Um, so I think the one question that I'm super interested about is I kind of want to know like the most fascinating thing you've learned about your research so far. Because over the last couple of days, you've been telling me some pretty interesting things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, geez. Most fascinating thing. That whole journal is pretty interesting. <laughs> Maybe like a top two. Top two. Oh, there's that one. Ye- yesterday I-, I was reading about, I think it was curing croup. With the croup? nostrils of a horse, oh, yeah. heated steam. <laughs> What's croup? Uh, well, isn't like something about like cough, like yeah, babies? I think, right, right. Oh, yeah. What would, is there? Is that still a thing? Is that still a problem? Yeah, or? yeah. yeah. Pe- yeah. People get get it. Okay, I've never even heard of that. Is it like whooping cough, or is it di- different? <clears throat> um, I think it's different, but I think it's maybe the same. Like maybe similar. similar? Like similar I'm, virus I'm or something not 100 percent sure hmm yeah i don't know i've i'd be interested to learn more about what croup is <laughs> right <coughs> all right well we're coming toward the end of our time here on the show today with Ikaya. before we go though I, annie and i have been asking each interview guest that special question that we kind of started a lot of our thinking on this whole show idea mm-hmm. is what, how do you be indigenous in the modern world? And so our question for you is, what would your three tips be for an indigenous person, especially maybe a young person? What would your three tips be for being indigenous in the modern world? Oh, thanks. That's, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> one, I was... <clears throat> excuse me again. One, I think I would say that you should definitely talk to your elders. Mm. Uh, There's been so many instances where I have wished I could have talked to my mom about this Mm. one thing or that one thing that I can't anymore. And then I've heard that also, that sentiment expressed multiple times um, in my research and just being in, you know, native communities and around native people, around people really just in general. Um, so yeah, talk to your elders. Uh, the second one, I would say the second one, I would say to people, maybe especially young people, um, you know, the assimilation policies have made modern natives a kind of a diaspora, I guess. And so really when you're looking to connect to... What's a a diaspora for anybody out there not familiar with that? Um, It's like a group a loose grouping of people that identify with certain things rather than being i think i don't know maybe i'm not being super clear but it's also like there's a a common heritage Mm -hmm. but not exactly common Mm. a similar heritage okay so like a, a group of people with a different heritage coming together right kind of sort of as a group right yeah yeah okay and Annie and I were just looking this up. 78% of Native Americans live in urban areas. Mm. Whoa. So, yeah. That's a, that's a big, I didn't a know that. Big chunk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So most people aren't living on their traditional homelands. Yeah. So that's why I say t- talk to your elders. And also I would say, um, search out your connection to place, whatever it may be. Mm, because of that diaspora. Yeah. Issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, so find, Find what it is that connects you to where you are, um, specifically and concretely the land, um, and uh, dive into that. And maybe the third one, gosh, I was thinking about this. Oh, there's so many. (laughs) The third one, 
learn your language. Mm, definitely. That's that's probably one of the most profound and powerful things that you can do to connect to your heritage and to continue being a good ancestor. Mm. Yeah. That's a in in any way you can to just even mm-hmm. a little bit and as yeah. much as you can possibly use every right. day. Yeah. Right. I'm not the best example of a language learner or a language student, but <clears throat> I try to incorporate what I can into my daily life. And there are little things you can do to make that easier for yourself. Um, like putting little post-its around or waking up and saying three things or whatever. But um, yeah, I'd say use, don't be afraid to use it and use what you can. Like I was saying with my sons earlier, if you know the word for water, and this is something that my language instructor always said, if you know the word for water in your language, don't use water. Always mm-hmm. use ama or mbish or mni or whatever whatever your language is, always use that because then you're always saying at least one or two words every day mm. in your language. And you can build from there. Mm-hmm. I use a lot of simple commands to, with my kids because mm. <laughs> it's easy. Yeah. And they get it. And they get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody stops when I say, Orajopi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Growing up listening to my mom speak Pekani and then going around elders. And for example, the first time I went around a elder I didn't know and they they just naturally said put. I knew exactly what to do because yeah. I was raised by hearing that word and I there's different translations I can give for that but basically it means hurry up here yeah. now right right and so and, and so it's the that underlying meaning that yeah. gets through to kids more than that words translation into English right and so it's an yeah. actional kind of thing right and I also with that, because that's the exact meaning of Orajopi too, I try to incorporate positive commands mm. so that there's not a negative association with the language. Like, yeah. oh, I'm in trouble. He's, he's <laughs> speaking yeah, he's Potawatomi. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really good point. That's a really yeah, good point. Yeah, I guess I've never really thought about kind like, of the negative. I always say, like, gas, like, good job mm-hmm. when they do something, you know. So there's mm. a positive affirmation in my language too i love that cool that's a good one well thank you for coming on the show thank you i'm so glad we finally got to interview you and learn a little bit more about where you're coming from and especially some of your deeper beliefs about what you're getting into this for like Mm -hmm. why you're doing this so thank you kaya Mm -hmm. i'd like to ask one more thing yeah i'd like to see if maybe you'd be willing to teach annie and i how to say goodbye in Potawatomi. Mm. There's no word for goodbye in our language. Good. I, I was actually kind of fishing there a little bit. <laughs> so how do, how about uh, you help us say see you later or uh, okay. we'll see you guys or we'll talk to you again yeah. to to our audience. Uh, I guess what I hear most around Shawnee is Bamapi. Oh, uh, yeah. I've heard that. Bamapi. Bamapi. And it just literally it's slang for like later on. Like, mm. See you later. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right, so we shall we all let's all say it together and to to finish our show or this episode anyway. Okay, one. Oh, we're gonna count count down. Count yeah, down. you you one. can. Okay, one. Wait in Salish. Do it in oh, Salish. Oh, in Ku Basel Chechlet. Bama P. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to download the podcast, you can find us at any of the main platforms like iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and definitely leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps a ton. And it also helps us understand what people would like to hear more of. So we definitely appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And you can also find us at our WordPress page and also on social media, right? Yep. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all at... Indian Science Show, so NDN Science Show, where you can let us know how we're doing or if you have an idea for the show. 
yeah, let us and know. We'll put out announcements for our releases as well as some other content we're working on trying to get some videos as well as mm-hmm. do other different things. So you can find out all about all that on those places, the social media, but we also have a WordPress page. And just like Annie said, it's at NDN Science Show. And the spelling of it is N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W.wordpress.com. That's IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll catch you on the flip side.